ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another rip-roaring, fun-packed, fact-filled episode of the 33Fuel podcast. My name is Warren, I'm one of the co-founders here at 33Fuel, and it gives me great pleasure today to introduce you to Rini McGregor. Rini is an absolutely tip-top, top-of-a-game sports and eating disorder dietitian. She has experience at Olympic level, and a number of other elite and professional levels as well. She's been working in this field for 20 years, and Rini is a leading authority on a number of subjects, but specifically the one we're diving into today, which is RED-S, otherwise known as Relative Energy Deficiency Syndrome. In short, it means you've been training a lot or racing a lot, and you might not be putting enough fuel in the tank, both during your races, but also in between times. The cumulative effects of all this is that the body can start to break down. Now, because this overlaps with overtraining, it can also knock into hormonal issues. Um, it can actually culminate in pretty much full-blown burnout. Um, but because there are so many different inputs, it can be hard to identify exactly where to start in rectifying the problem, and also quite hard to identify how to avoid getting into that sort of situation in the first place which is why I feel this conversation is so valuable right now. If you're training with any degree of seriousness and high performance is your goal, and let's not forget, high performance doesn't necessarily mean going to the Olympics. It might do if you're in, in the space where that's a possibility. High performance simply means going to your own personal limit. And this is something that uh, four-time world Ironman champion Chrissy Wellington has always been so great at explaining. The idea that it's not about High performance doesn't just mean the top in the world, it means the top that you are able to achieve within the constraints of your life. So for all of us amateur athletes, we're juggling jobs, we're juggling families, we're juggling all sorts of other things, and we're doing our training. So high performance, what I'm getting at, it's not exclusively the grounds of people winning gold medals and world championships, it's anyone going to the limit of their own ability within the constraints of their own lives. Now, if that's you, and I would imagine given the, uh, what we know of all of you lot out there in our podcast land, I think this is going to apply to a lot of you. Um, and it certainly applies to most of us here at 33Fuel. We like to push the envelope. When you do, you run the risk of falling over the other side. Now, the odd crash and burn every now and again is, is all part and parcel of learning anything and growing in any way. But there is a risk with Red S that you could do yourself some serious damage. So with this conversation, Rini goes really deep on exactly what it is how to understand it, and what you can do about it. Um, it's another one of those great tools that every athlete should have in their toolbox in terms of going for their maximum performance. And that's what we're all about here at 33Fuel, is about sharing the information and the tools that allow all athletes to do that. And we do it here on our podcast, we do it on our vlog, we do it on our social channels, our blog, we do it in our download books, all over the place, and we also do it at 33Fuel.com where you will find the very best, most delicious, high performance, no compromise, completely natural sports nutrition. Uh, so do go there and get stocked up for your next race, your next training session, even go and get some of our bars. They make incredible snacks during the day, totally healthy, absolutely guilt-free, oodles of protein, no sweeteners, no junk. That just ain't how we roll, only the good stuff. So do grab yourself some of those, uh, pull up a chair, get comfortable, and settle in for this chat with Rini McGregor. Rini, thank you for coming to join us today and very appropriately from your kitchen. Yes, I know. I don't have an amazing setup, so yeah, you're in my kitchen, but yes, it's uh, all good. <laughs> no, I like that because there are some people who would build an amazing setup and have a fake kitchen to make them look extra like they're focused on food and, and nutrition, and instead you are actually in your kitchen, which is generally where all of the best food comes from anyway. Yeah, and it's funny because I actually always work in my kitchen. So it's not like I've done this especially for you. I I was I tend to, I've got a table here which means I can spread out and my kitchen's in the basement of my house. So it it's quite nice, it's quite cozy and quite quiet and and the best thing now that it's cold is that there's a radiator here. So I can stay warm as well. So it's all good. Very very <laughs> important. Well, it's good that you've got those those key bases covered. Now, in terms of what we wanted to look into today, I mean, the, the driver is Red S, 
relative energy deficiency syndrome. Did I get that right? You did, yes. Excellent. Okay, we're off. We're off to an okay start. I've, I've, I've got, got us this far. Um, my expertise will quickly run out, which is why you're here. I mean, would you be able to give us a brief overview of what it is, and also who is at risk? Because I think there is an awareness really growing because of the work that you're doing, along with Nikki Kay as well. Um, but the maybe people could see it as maybe it's only professional athletes, or maybe it's only female athletes, or maybe it's specifically ballet dancers. So. Could you just sort of give us an overview of what it is, why people should be bothered and, and who's affected? Yeah, of course. So relative energy deficiency is basically exactly that. It's that in a, in, in a, inefficiency. So there's a, a, a low energy availability for the work that you do. Right. So if we think about the body, the body needs a certain amount of energy just in order to function. So that's like, you know, when we get out of bed in the morning and we stumble down the stairs to make a cup of tea, it needs a certain amount of energy just just to stay alive and then on top of that if we do sport or physical activity then we need more energy going in and so basically if you don't put enough energy to to use for the for the work that you do in house and then the work you do externally you end up in this situation which is relative energy deficiency syndrome so there's just not quite enough work and what happens is the body tends to prioritize um, movement so that's any sort of movement, right? So again, people often get confused with um, just thinking about their training. But even if you're somebody that maybe is quite active, like if you've got an active job, you know, we often see, I often see it in individuals who, you know, they, they do their sport, but on top of that, they might um, be personal trainers or they might be postmen or they might be um, builders. So they've got a physically demanding job on top of their training load. Um, which means that they're probably going to find it quite difficult to meet all their requirements. So it, this is where it becomes a problem. And it's this sort of this kind of this disequilibrium, I like to call it, where they haven't got quite enough energy to do all the work the body needs. And so it slowly starts to shut things down one by one. So if you think about it, it's almost a bit like you're having your phone on, you know, 20 percent and it starts shutting all the apps down. It's, it kind of works in that sort of same principle. And in terms of who it affects, it basically affects anybody. So I think there's this real misconception that if you're only if you're an elite athlete, you're going to be affected. But actually, I would say we probably see a higher percentage of red S in recreational athletes, um, you know, weekend warriors, that kind of thing, because they're also managing so many different aspects of their life. It's not just that they are um, doing their training. You know, they often have families and they have jobs and and they have to do all these other activities on top of it so it I wouldn't say it's just specific to elite athletes although we're hearing a lot from elite athletes um, but actually they probably make up a small percentage because they do generally have a team around them um, and they don't you know they often have inbuilt rest and and they have people telling them what they should and shouldn't be doing from a fueling point of view majority of the time um, and males and females are both affected. So the difficulty is that, I was talking about this with, with somebody this morning, is that with the, with the females, you have an absolute sign. Like as soon as menstruation becomes affected, whether it becomes lighter or erratic or stops completely, it's like, oh, okay, something's not right here. The balance is gone. But with men, it, it's harder to find the symptoms. And so often by the time they present to me in clinic, the male athletes that I work with are in a really bad way because it's so difficult to kind of find the symptoms that, you know, there's not this one sign that you can pick up on. And so, I mean, that 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 feels like a great overview and it sparks a number of questions. And I think the first one is for any cynics listening to this and thinking that Red S might be a convenient way of making something sound complicated when actually what it should be called is being hungry. Um, if, if someone who's listening to that and going, well, this is really simple, it's just about not eating enough. Um, what would you say to someone who, who was thinking that? So there's two things there. The first thing I would address is there's two types of red S. So there's voluntary red S um, and there's involuntary red S. So involuntary red S is when somebody just basically doesn't realize how much food they need for the training that they do and the activity they do. And, and these people are quite easy to work with because you help them to understand where the 
discrepancies are you put a plan together and and usually they'll put it into place and and it's done and and you know within a few weeks their symptoms will improve and they'll be performing well again voluntary red s is a conscious decision to restrict your intake and or overtrain and it usually has a psychological element so if you want to be kind of i suppose again people ask me this all the time so surely it's basically an eating disorder um, yes, is, is the bottom line. It is an eating disorder within sport, but we call it voluntary red S. I think, again, there's a lot of taboo around eating disorders and what they are. And I think so probably it's, a, you know, from a sporting perspective, it doesn't seem quite so um, unacceptable to accept. So to answer your question directly about hunger, yeah, you're right. You know, you'd think that if you if you just follow your appetite cues, surely you should be eating enough. However, the thing you've got to remember is that when you start doing quite a lot of training, potentially you don't, your hunger cues don't always match what's going on. So again, in this involuntary red S where you, you're just not doing it right, if you think about when you've done a hard training session, you don't always feel hungry immediately afterwards. So you might find actually if you've done something really, really hard, you feel a bit sick to start with and then eventually sort of six maybe 12 hours later you're like ravenous and you want to eat loads and that, that's absolutely fine like most people will make it up but there are some cases where again if there's a busy life it doesn't always fit in and so it becomes it's not an actual choice to not eat enough it just doesn't quite match the, the lifestyle that's going on and, and obviously those immediate cues are right actually I, I can't eat anything right now so I'll, I'll get it later and then of course you don't always make it up when you have um voluntary red s you basically block those hunger cues. And so your body becomes very, very confused. Um, and so you, you get to the point where basically because of hormonal changes, you probably don't actually register or, or can, can pick up on your hunger cues anymore. And it, it opens a complete tangled web because, I mean, there, there are so many angles I'd like to look at here, both the you know, racing weight and performance, then also the... Uh, you know, how many cyclists, you know, love to go cycling, but love to eat the cake or ultra runners who go, well, I ultra run because I love to eat. And, it, and there's a lot of that that can be a, build a healthy relationship with food. Um, but equally, it could split the other way when you bring in the racing weight and the coaching. But to go back to something you mentioned earlier, um, you're talking about for female athletes, um, any interruption or uh, stopping of menstruation is a key sign that red S is at play. Now, clearly I'm not a female athlete, but I've come across enough elite female athletes who've referred to periods, extended periods of, no, of not having any periods. Um, and it almost seems, well, that's normal for an elite uh, aerobic female athlete. Now, clearly it's not normal for a human being. Um, is there a cultural thing in there? I mean, could it even be a badge of honor? That's just what happens to an elite athlete. Is there a barrier to overcome there for female athletes who just thought this was part of the process or is that am I viewing that culture incorrectly and that culture doesn't exist no I think you're right unfortunately I've had a number of elite athletes that come into clinic and just and have said that it you're almost led to believe that if you have a period you're not working hard enough um, and it's a very very old school thinking like very prehistoric I would say but you know you know what do I know um, but prehistoric coaching thinking and, and the culture within sport. But I think the problem comes, as we've probably found with everything, Warren, is that, you know, coaching's come a long way in the last 20, 50 years, and that we now have an awful lot of sports science that underpins coaching profession, the coaching profession. Um, and there's some amazing coaches out there, like I work with some brilliant coaches, and, and they're really open-minded, and, and when an athlete comes with problems, you can speak to the coach and they understand and they want to listen and they want to be, you know, they want to work alongside the athlete to make sure that um, the, they get the best outcome. But there is still a lot of old school thinking, I think, um, in coaching and in certainly in certain sports where the lighter you are, the better you are. Women shouldn't have periods. You know, this, this sort of this comes along, but it's also poor education because what they don't appreciate is that when you get to the point, either male or female, 
where your body cannot produce enough of the hormones that you need for reproduction. So whether that's estrogen or testosterone in, in males and females, you basically also don't produce enough growth hormone, which means you do not adapt from the training you do. So it's a really, really, again, it's, it's very poorly understood by coaches because, again, not every single coach has got a degree in biochemistry, physiology, um, uh, you know, endocrinology, anatomy, and I wouldn't expect them to, but I would expect them to be updated and to be to be hungry and curious for how you move coaching forward as time goes on. And I suppose that's where some of my frustrations come about. And obviously, one of the reasons we set up Train Brave in the first place was because of this culture within sport and people not always being aware of the education that underpins you know, really, really good performance. And even now, when I talk to um, athletes in clinic, they're like, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that it was so vital to have those hormones at certain levels. And a lot of people don't know it. You know, it's, it's not, it's not common knowledge, but, you know, and so you end up with these, these athletes that basically have their non-existent hormones. They, they might get one or two really good results because they were, you know, initially, unfortunately, as you do get lighter, you'd probably do get a couple of good results, but it's not sustainable. And like the whole point of me setting up my clinic and train brave is, you know, my whole ethos and my whole philosophy is about producing sustainable athletes that can go the long distance and not just the one hit wonders. And it's, uh, it's interesting that you say it's not, um, you know, a common thought for people to connect that, you know, if you are not reproductively healthy, then, you know, you can't be uh, at your peak as an athlete because the body's not going to rebuild, build, rebuild perfectly. Um, but logically, common sense-wise, that makes perfect sense. But if you've been brought up in a sporting atmosphere, it's a, it's a similar thing to what we found with a lot of nutrition products that led to us even starting this company was, well, I get that certain things are meant to be proven and stuff, but a number of the ingredients have fundamentally unhealthy side effects in the short and the long term. So how can unhealthy suddenly be high performance? And there was a, there was a disconnect. And it sounds like there's a disconnect here in terms of elements of professional coaching, even though it's starting to change, um, are focused on high performance behavior, which is ultimately unhealthy. And what you're unpicking in all of this is that high performance behavior cannot be unhealthy because by definition, if it's unhealthy, it's low performance. A hundred percent. And I wouldn't say it's just coaches. I think it's really important to highlight that there's a lot of practitioners within sport that just don't have that knowledge. You know, like when I think about... Um, when I think about my training, so my qualifications, you know, I started with a biochemistry degree. That was what I did, um, you know, first. So I I started to understand how the body works at a cellular level and understood all those interactions that happen. I then went on to do a dietetics degree where you learn very much about the clinical aspect of the body. So again, what happens when you get different diseases? What happens when hormones are off track? What happens when um, the body isn't healthy and how do you implement dietary interventions to improve those different conditions and as a dietitian clinical dietitian you then have to go through some really serious training so it's not like you become a dietitian and, and that's it like I did first 18 months of just general what you call general um, dietetics which meant I covered about 10 wards in a London teaching hospital. So I never sat down, basically. I was constantly got this bleep that made me run around. It's a bit like a junior doctor. You know, you're just constantly running around, but you're learning so much. Your experience of gastro, oncology, maxfax, geriatrics, pediatrics, like you're just learning so much. And then you move into your next phase where you're kind of like, I guess, still a junior, if you're looking at it from a junior doctor point of view, still like an SHO rather than an H, a house officer, you move up the next level. And you do another 18 months where you specialize within maybe two or three of the specialities that you might be interested in. So I did um, renal, gastroenterology and um, pediatrics. So that was my kind of areas that I was interested in at the time. 
And then you focus on what you're going to do next. And so then from my point of view, I actually went into pediatrics for a while, which is where I did a lot of work in eating disorders, because that's kind of where a lot of the eating disorder work was coming from. And and it was only after this point, so like this is now probably seven years down the line that I'm, you know, have worked in a clinical field that I'm finally probably doing some clinical work in one specific area. And it was only at this point that I was like, you know what, I'm really sporty. I really like sport. I'm going to go and do a sports a sports nutrition postgrad, you know, masters, which is what I ended up doing. So it was the it was the combination of it's my combination of being able to do that sports nutrition, sports science, as well as all that clinical stuff that means I have this really good understanding of what goes on. So when an athlete comes into my clinic, even you know, even before I started off this clinic, even like just my practice, I would I would be problem solving. I would look at what was being presented in front of me, like what what is the athlete saying to me, or what's the client saying to me, what are the bloods telling me, what's the bigger picture. You know, what's going on here? What's the behavior of the person? Like, what's their um, body language telling me? Like, all of that stuff. And that, and then you respond to that. Now, I don't know that many practitioners that works work in that manner, but that's how I work. And that's probably what makes me a little bit different to, you know, some of the sports nutritionists that are out there working in high-performance sport who tend to have, like, a sports science degree, which is great, absolutely fantastic but they don't have that practical clinical experience that makes you really look at somebody and go what's going on internally here what they're looking at is oh they didn't perform very well oh maybe they need a bit more carbs or maybe they need to lose a bit of weight or maybe you know they're looking at the kind of the generalization of it whereas I'm going they're not performing well what's going on with their bloods are they iron deficient are they vitamin d deficient What's going on with their thyroid function? You know, what's happening with them hormonally? Issues with their female, are they having periods? You know, I'm asking all these questions. And that's the difference. And I think that's not to say that there aren't people doing that, but I know it's very rare because mm. I've worked in that very high performance world. And I know that, uh, you know, even then I was unusual. Coaches were going, why are you asking so many questions? Because you need to know this stuff, really. Well, I think it's, it's looking at the whole athlete, the whole person, um, and as a, as a sort of a, a much simpler example, I, I had a, an ongoing Achilles problem. I went through several physios and uh, it was only when one of them actually videoed me running two years after trying to sort this problem out that it was really able to, you know, and then brought in a chiropractor as alongside the physio to put the whole thing together. And by looking at this thing from three different angles, well, what do you know? We got it fixed. Whereas all that was happening before was temporary fix followed by re reoccurrence of the problem and it sounds like you bring that multidisciplined approach to be able to look at the same event from five different angles to get a broader picture of what's going on and I guess the irony is that what's going on when you do take that view from a common sense and logical point of view makes perfect sense but if you can only see it through the sporting prism um, then it's not quite as clear I mean if when you start, when we start, you know, we brought up, we've got eating, eating disorders on the go here. We've got energy deficiency. Um, we've got hormone function, iron levels, the whole lot. This could be the point where I feel anyone joining us here might be thinking, this is getting really complicated and a bit scary because like, well, how do I possibly begin to work out, you know, does this affect me? Is, you know, is this something I need to know about? So, I mean, at a really sort of top line level, how could, I mean, you say for, for female athletes, the, the big warning flag is, is uh, interruption or stopping of periods. What about for male athletes? Because you say they, they tend to go a lot further down the line because we don't have the sort of obvious early warning signs. How, how could a male athlete identify maybe if there was an issue or not? And, and then we'll come on to the females from there and, and then start looking at ways to, to deal with it or even avoid getting it in the first place. Sure. So with male athletes, like the common things that we see are they might be getting recurrent injuries. So if you get a lot of soft tissue type injuries, that's often a sign that hormones are probably a little bit imbalanced. Um, so obviously you would look at it from a physio point of view, check biomechanics and all that kind of stuff. But if that's all OK, then the recurrent injuries could be related to changes in hormonal levels. Um, mood can be affected like 
again, both testosterone and estrogen are really important for serotonin uptake. So you find that when they're low, it affects your mood. You can be quite low in mood. And then the only way you can lift your mood is to get that dopamine hit and the endorphin hit from your training. But then it doesn't last that long. And then you go out again. So it becomes like this addiction. So we get a lot of exercise addiction from that point of view. Um, one of the things men, male athletes do probably notice, and they might not notice it immediately, but it will be that um, morning erectile function decreases. So we always say that if that drops to below f- less than five a week, then that might be a sign that there's a bit of overtraining, underfueling going on. It's not 100%, but it gives us an, an indicator that maybe it's worth checking blood tests and just making sure what's going on. Um, and then the other thing is that you might find, and, and this won't happen with everybody, but you might find there's a heightened sense of anxiety generally around not being able to train um, food potentially like, you know, become, maybe even becoming a little bit more um, obsessive about getting it right, you know, kind of a little bit more OCD type thing. So that's not always the case. And I don't want people to think that they have to wait to that point. It's not always the case. The, the key ones I would say for, for males to look out for will be things like, obviously, morning erectile function, um, mood, um, your injury rate, possibly sleep. So sleep can sometimes get affected as well. But also the other thing is recovery in between. Like you might just find you're not recovering as well in between. You're not feeling rested. Like you wake up and you just think, oh, I don't feel rested today. But you still go out and you turn, you know, you turn out a, a training session. So I think they're the things that I would probably focus on, to be fair. So, we, I mean, again, across the board there, a broad range of symptoms, but all coming down to you're not particularly healthy. You know, the, 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 health, the standard health markers are off point. Um, and would there be anything to add to that on for, I mean, I think it may be different for professional athletes who, you know, training is something, their life is built around it and whether they want to or not, they're going. Um, but in an amateur, in a lot of amateur athletes, then training is a great, uh, you know, it's a release, it's a bit of time to yourself, particularly if you've got kids or something like that. It can be something, a moment of enjoyment, even if it's hard, it, it's a freedom. Could there ever be a sign if that starts to feel stressful, like the thing that you're using as the thing you enjoy suddenly starts to become a stressful moment? Could that be a part of it as well? Definitely. Or if you're finding that you're having to compromise, you know, like I get a lot of, um, I do get a lot of people who are, you know, they have very high profile jobs, very busy jobs, very kind of stressful jobs. And, you know, they're getting up at 4, 5 a.m. in the morning to fit their session in because, you know, it's meant to make them feel better, but it doesn't because their cortisol levels are sky high. So they, you know, the stress hormone cortisol is sky high at that time anyway. And then they've got a stressful demanding job and then they're putting their body under more stress. And so you never quite feel like I had somebody the other day and, and they said, they just said, I'm just not getting that. I'm not getting that high anymore. Like I, I try and train, but I just don't feel it. I don't feel the endorphin rush I used to feel. And it's almost like it's become mechanical, something they have to tick off a to-do, like on their to-do list. So yeah, absolutely. I feel like I always say, like I always think about it myself. If I wake up and I think I have to go for a run, I generally don't go because it su- suggests to me that I'm probably quite tired. And, you know, like I know that my work means, you know, we've talked quite a few times and I'm, I'm all over the place and I'm you know, traveling a lot and I work long, like my clinic tomorrow, I'll start at nine, I won't finish till eight, like it's a long day in clinic. Um, So I have to be really protective of that at times and realize that I can't go out and train every day because if I'm tired, even if it's not physical tiredness, it's still going to add stress to my system and stress to my body which then potentially is going to affect my long-term health and my ability to train and my, and my performance overall. Well, there's a, there was a coach um, on one of our episodes a couple of months back, Neil Henderson. And one of his points which really resonated was the body can't tell the difference between life stress, work stress, emotional stress, and training stress. You know, the body kind of reacts to the, in the same way to all of them and needs to recover. Um, and... In that context, if you are loaded up with work and you're loaded up with training or, you know, you're a professional athlete, well, maybe we'll come to them next. I think they're probably a slightly different case. But um, you're loaded up in in that way. 
and your training enjoyment is going down, your general health markers, whether it's periods, erection function, whatever it may be, are just slightly knocking off. You're not feeling that, that spring in your step. From a nutritional point of view, um, what do you recommend people should do in terms of just starting to improve some basis or, or some, some basic areas they can start work on? So the key thing that um, we've, we found both observationally in our clinic, but also from the science that's, there's, there's not an awful lot of studies on this yet, but there's a couple, um, and it's kind of the work on those studies that I've then put into practice. And actually, like I said, we're seeing it in observationally in our clinic. The, the key thing is that uh, it's carbohydrate availability. So it's making sure there's enough carbohydrate prior to your training during if it's a long training session and then definitely immediately after and we know that makes a really big difference i mean just to give you some context and obviously it's it's observational not not a scientific study but in our clinic which we started in april so we've only had six months and we if we look at the women just because we've got an, an immediate indi- sign of things improving with their periods coming back 33 percent of the women that presented with hypothalamic amenorrhea have now got their period back. And that's like a lot of those women hadn't had periods for, you know, five years plus. And within, you know, within a period of time of working with us, and for me, a lot of it was about redistributing that energy in the right way, making sure that it was the composition of the diet was specific to the training needs and the lifestyle needs as well. Doing that has meant that they've got their period back. So, like I said, it's not a scientific study, but it's very observational and we have absolute data and evidence that it, it works. So we know that the, the, what, that's one of the first things I always talk to individuals about. And I think there's a real fear around carbohydrate. You probably find this as well with your, you know, in, in your company. There's a real fear of carbohydrate and what it's going to do to us. Like, I think, again, I get frustrated because it's people who are not highly qualified. It's people who haven't got the really scientific background dumbing down science even further to almost you know cause this mass hysteria that if you eat something with carbohydrates suddenly you're going to blow up into you know something horrendous it's kind of like you know that's that's the kind of feel it has and yet we both know that you know not all carbohydrate is is equal for a start and it's very easy to overconsume the wrong types of carbohydrate. Now, that doesn't mean you should never have them. And I would never stop anybody from having, you know, sugar or um, sweets or whatever or dessert on occasion. Never, because I think life's too short. But it's about knowing when to and knowing what that looks like for you. So this whole sort of thing about moderation is going to be different for everybody because it so much depends on your lifestyle and your activity levels, you know. Um but the good carbs, the things that we should be eating more of, you know, that the the kind of the, the whole grains, the pastas, the rices, the breads, you know, that the pulses, those things people are still fearful of. And what they also don't realize is that you actually have to eat quite a lot to get the grams of carbs you need for performance. So I was talking to a really good friend of mine this morning, actually, and we were just discussing this because she's she's a running coach and stuff. And She's talking about one of her clients and I was like, yeah, but the thing is, this guy's quite big as in he's, he's quite a heavy guy. Um, he's not overweight. He's just, he's, you know, he does a lot of weights and so he's quite, he's quite a big guy. And so in an immediate recovery period post training, you are looking at sort of 1.2 grams of carbs per kilogram body weight. Now for somebody that size, that's like 150 to 160 grams of carbs. That's quite a lot of volume. And if he's only having a couple of bits of toast with his eggs, like he's getting the, you know, he's maybe eating four or five eggs, so he's getting the protein in there. But a couple of bits of toast is only going to give you between 30 and 40 grams of carbs. So he's not quite hitting the numbers that he needs. And so this is the issue is that people are really fearful of carbs. And so they're having smaller and smaller portions or they're, they're chopping and changing it and using beans and pulses instead but they're not hitting the numbers they need. And and I find what I find fascinating quite often is that with the people I see in clinic, they've usually cut out those really important carbs only to then want lots of very, very high sweetened foods. So they won't eat the sugary foods, but they'll have like, 
you know, the sweetener, I don't know, things like hot chocolate that are made with sweeteners, you know, that, because they're, they're desperate for sugar. The body's desperate for sugar because it's not getting enough carbohydrate, right? There's a reason. So, and when you explain that to them, they're like, oh, you know, and, and it's, it's simple, really. But again, we live in a society where there's so much hysteria around food and food choice. And it's almost like, it's almost related to your identity as well. You know, like, I, I always find, I find it quite uncomfortable at times going out with people I don't know very well. My friends are fine because they just know me. But when I go at people I don't know very well, they'll be like, oh, we can't eat rubbish in front of you, Rini. And I'm like, well, I'm going to, so it's absolutely fine. You know, it doesn't really bother me. Like, you're not my clients. I don't really care what you do. And they're like, well, you're going to have a pudding. I'm like, well, yeah, because I don't eat puddings every day. I don't get to go out that often. And actually, if you're taking me out for dinner and I've done a, you know, and I'm hungry, I'm going to eat a pudding. Like, and, and it's interesting that people have this this identity, you know, that they can kind of put you under. And I get it a lot. I get it a lot on Instagram, people saying, you know, you never post pictures of what you eat. And I don't for a reason, because it's not important to anybody else what I eat. It shouldn't be relevant because it's suited to me and not to anybody else. But I'm also, you're never, if I did post what I eat, you're never going to find a turmeric latte or a matcha tea because I'm just not into that stuff. And that's not, there's anything wrong with it. I'm just not into it. It's just not my thing. I know exactly what you mean there. (laughs) Erica and I have, have realized over the years that, um, again, you know, particularly with dinner parties or or things like that, we have to be the first person to order because otherwise everyone else orders something they don't want because they think it's what they should order. And not always, but there's that element where the people think, well, you might be thinking about what I'm eating. No, I'm not. (laughs) We're having dinner. Um, and on top of that, there's also that, you know, if we go to a dinner party, we'll often take a box of chocolates or something. It sort of just diffuses things before you've got there. And some people are a bit, what, you brought us chocolates? Well, why not? You know, I don't expect you to eat a box of chocolates every day. But I mean, you're right. The, the relationship around food is a very personal thing. I think a lot of uh, media doesn't help uh, the way people look at it. And certainly the mainstream media, the model is to not give you a conclusion because if you've got a conclusion, well, you're not going to come back and read tomorrow. Um, therefore, you know, and also on top of that, you bring in uh, corporate interests or activist interests. And, you know, one story comes out on one side of the spectrum. So the other side has to respond. And that's, that's why we get the Daily Mail telling us X causes cancer on Tuesday and telling us it cures cancer by Friday. So we can, we can step away from all that. But the thing I'm really interested in here is um, how and if uh, issues around Red S and carbohydrate availability uh, can then be balanced with or even are compatible with the idea of gentle training and diet changes to improve natural fat burning ability, which is something that a lot of athletes we've seen can benefit from by improving that because you can reduce that carbohydrate dependence and that's really uh, a backlash against I think a lot of mainstream sports nutrition companies recommending such high carbohydrate uh, consumption that anyone following those guidelines pretty much destroys their natural ability to burn fat and are left only able to fuel from carbohydrates so is there a healthy balance in there between the you know improving the body's ability to fuel from fat but also not going so far down that, that path. And I think, again, that people can come, become obsessed with anything. It, it becomes unhealthy at a point. Not going so far down that path that you run into carbohydrate deficiency. It, I mean, what would you recommend or what are your thoughts on walking that line and do the two things even? Can they exist side by side? So it's a really, I think it's a really interesting question. And when... When the whole kind of low-carb, high-fat, fat adaptation came to light, probably three, four, five years ago, that's when people started to really think about it. It was one of those that every athlete I worked with was like, I, I want to become fat adapted. I want to become fat adapted. And there wasn't really enough information, again, in terms of scientific information to know what that really meant. And so it was a kind of case of, okay, well, you know, if we think about it, marathon runners have always been 
more efficient at using fat for fuel, not because they've been carb deficient, but because of the kind of training they do, right? They'd go out on a long Sunday run, even if they used to have, I mean, they used to have a lot of white carbs, even if they used to have like bowls bowl of cornflakes and a couple of bits of white toast with marmalade, at some point that's going to run out, right? And you're going to end up using more fat for fuel. So, uh, you know, like I'm very much, I think, I think we put too much emphasis on fat adaptation on food, and actually, it tends to come more from the from manipulating your training more than it does from cutting back on fuel too much. And I think you have to be really, really careful because, again, I saw a lot of athletes and a lot of athletes um, who did that whole low carb, high fat or fasted training for a period of time. And yeah, initially they felt great. But within six months, a lot of them developed depressed immune systems. A lot of them found that their um their performance actually, while it initially improved, it then started to de- decrease. I had elite athletes who were developing real autoimmune conditions because there wasn't enough carbohydrate in the system. So I think it's, it, I don't, I think you have to be very, very careful. And I think it's not necessarily that um, you need to take carbs out of your diet, but in just in the way that you've said, I think, again, we've been sold this misconception that before every run, you need to eat like three mounds of pasta in a plate and of course that's not what we're saying at all Um, and similarly I think you know when people say when I say to people you shouldn't really do fasted training particularly if they're coming back from red s they really shouldn't do fasted training and you know they'll be like well what do you want do you you want me to eat like a massive plate like a massive bowl of porridge before I go and I was like well no I'm not expecting you to do that but I am expecting you to take on something that is easily digestible and is going to provide you with some carbohydrates that your body's not going out on empty. So that might be, you know, a banana, a banana and a pot of yogurt, or it might be um, some oat cakes and mashed banana. Like we're not talking mega, you know, like if you look at that, it's probably about 30 grams of carbs. It's not 150 grams of carbs or 200 grams of carbs. It's a small amount to get you through and get the body working efficiently. And your fat adaptation then comes from the training you do. You know, like our bodies become more and more efficient at using fat for fuel the more we train because because they do. That's just kind of, you can see that when you're looking at people's VO2 max results and if you put, if you watch them, you know, if you, if, you, if you monitor it over a period of time, you can see that shift in terms of their ability to utilize, um, uh, to tolerate lactate better and, and to tolerate acid better. But you can also see that they're, what we look at their respiratory quotient also improves. So they, they tend to burn a lot more fat for a lot longer. So I think, again, it's one of those things that widestream media has once again dumbed it down so much that people believe that they have to do, you know, certain training sessions empty. And, and, and that's where the problems have come because then people have suddenly gone, well, I'm going to do my HIIT session fasted. And of course, that's the worst type of training to do fasted because you're you're putting so much pressure on your body and we also know again from absolute scientific studies that in order to hit those really high paces in those hit sessions or those intervals or whatever you can only use carbs for fuel you can't get the energy there otherwise to hit those paces so so this is where it then becomes problematic because people absorb the bits they cherry pick the bits of advice they want to create something they're very good at selling it they're very convincing but they don't have that background to really understand what's going on at you know at this physiological level i mean it sounds like from that that as with so many uh of the sort of top level elements of quality nutrition for and quality performance that it's quite sensible, you know, you don't go and chuck all the carbs out the window to improve fat ad- adaptation. You may look at your diet and improve the quality of the carbs you eat while increasing the amount of quality fats that you eat. So that would get you into a good healthy place. And at the same time, don't go out and smash out that high intensity session. But if you do want to do any fasted training at all, A, make sure you're healthy before you do it. And when you do, exactly. it's slow training where you would naturally be burning the fat anyway rather than trying to achieve something that the body isn't built to do which that's all very sensible but with so many competing inputs that people have to filter these days it can feel an awful lot more complicated than that yeah i think and i think that's the problem like you know i started working specifically in sports nutrition back in 
2010, just in the lead up to London uh, 2012. And we didn't really have social media, like we didn't have Instagram. It was there, but it wasn't as big. It wasn't as a big thing. And then as the years have gone on, I remember, I remember like I did, did the London um, cycle, then did the Rio cycle. And definitely by, by the time. Cycle, yes. Yeah, yeah. So by the time we were getting into that, more and more athletes were like, well, I saw this on Instagram and such and such athletes doing this. And, and, and it's just, it, it made my job, it has made my job so much harder because people, so the thing, one thing to remember about, especially voluntary red S or, you know, under fueling, whatever we want to call it, eating disorders, whatever you want to call it. The thing to remember is that often when it's the psychological aspect of it, when it's somebody who is choosing to do that, that behavior is providing a purpose, right? So that purpose could be a number of things. It could be because they feel so uncomfortable within themselves, like their self-perception and their sense of self is so low that that's really, really uncomfortable to, to accept and to feel. And so when you then restrict your intake or when you train, you actually numb those feelings for a short period of time. And again, so it becomes that behavior that comes learnt that, you know, well, if I restrict my intake, I don't feel anything. So I'll, I'll stay like this. When I train, I numb it. So I'll, I'll keep on training. So it becomes this learnt behavior, that's feedback loop. For other people, it can be a sense of worth like you're trying to define your worth through your achievements so we see this a lot with athletes you know that this kind of need to keep proving themselves they need to keep proving and pushing and pushing and pushing but no matter where they get to they'll push it again and they'll push it again and they'll push it again and there's no you know it becomes this sort of very dysfunctional relationship and I think that's the thing like perfectionism is quite an interesting area and it's something that I'm doing a lot of research on at the moment because I think there's a, I think a lot of people see perfectionism as a really positive trait, like as a trait that's, well, if you're perfectionist, you're really driven and you're motivated and that's really, really good. But perfectionism is actually what hinders most people because it's a belief system that you're never enough and you have to constantly prove your worth and you have to constantly find ways of proving that you're good enough. Now, whether that's through sporting achievements, through you know, academic achievements, whatever it might be, but you never get to the point where you're comfortable in yourself. So every time you go and do more, all you're really doing is consolidating the fact that you're not enough because you're looking to do more and do more. And so, you know, the, the thing about Instagram is when you're already somebody that is stuck in this very negative place where you don't like who you are, you're struggling with your sense of self and you've, you've found these behaviors that kind of help to maintain that or they help to kind of contain it, shall we say, or deal with it you then look for validation for these behaviors. So you go in search of things that help you to maintain those behaviors and go and tell yourself, that, well, this is the right thing to do. Even though you might be feeling physically awful, you'll still go in search. It's like when I, you know, when I get some people that come in and they insist on drinking almond milk, let's say, for an, for an example, and you're like, but you do realize there is absolutely no nutritional benefit to almond milk. It is literally just white water. There is nothing in it. If you like the taste, fair enough. But don't, don't, you know, don't kid yourself into thinking you're getting any nutrition from it. And then they'll bring out the facts. Well, it does this. And it's like, but, but these facts are coming from a blogger who knows nothing. It's an N equals one. So it's not really scientific. And, and so it's difficult because I think Instagram can be amazing. And I know for my own platform, like I've really used it to educate people because I appreciate not everybody can access me and I'm, I'm, I'm not accessible to everybody. And I'm, I'm also not always available. Like, you know, my clinics are very full and very busy. And, um, but I want to help as many people as I possibly can. And so my posts are never about my life. They're always about education, you know, like, a couple of days ago, I did a post around um, the menstrual cycle and how female athletes should um, fuel around that menstrual cycle because there are some real clear, um, definite, uh, clear t changes that you need based on what's going on for you. Um, you know, other posts were like yesterday's post was very much about red S and what signs are to look for and, and how do you how do you combat them. So I'm always trying to provide education. 
But I appreciate, you know, there are also lots of other accounts out there that are N equals one. And this is my story and it worked for me. So it should work for you, too. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a minefield, I think, for people, especially if you don't know where to look. I think it's an absolute minefield. Yeah, well, I think what what's really uh, what's come out really strongly in, in this conversation and your expertise is that whereas there are a number of conflicting or competing inputs that people have to filter and lots of complicated factors involved in uh, Red S and, and maintaining uh, a quality training diet for performance, the basics if you wanted to strip it back just to find out if you're moving in the right sort of direction before it gets too complicated it comes back to you know eating a pretty healthy balanced diet being comfortable with not being so rigid about your food that you never eat dessert or, or whatever it may be um, by the same token you don't spend your whole day on the sofa eating box after box of Pringles you know that's probably not good for you either um, but the the, the basics in there are, are pretty easy to spot and manage, but then when you go in search of higher performance and more knowledge, well, you could get yourself into the weeds at, at that point. And I mean, what I'd love to have a quick look at is uh, elite performance and the idea of racing weight, because Certainly in the in the athletic sphere, I mean, at the elite level, it's all over it, but that's trickling down. In cycling, power to weight trickled down years ago. Like, well, you know, if I lose X kilograms, that's going to give me X more watts on every climb. You know, it's an absolute, the, the equation is a no-brainer. Um, so how how do you see the relationship between ideal racing weight um, which, depending on the, the coaching system in place, may or may not even be a healthy weight. I suppose, let me formulate this a bit, bit more clearly. How do you see the balance between racing weight, healthy weight, and elite performance? And, and do those three things have an opportunity to e exist together? Because, I mean, it's been very, it's becoming quite public now that there's been a lot of times it's, they don't fit, i.e. the racing weight that the athlete is being encourage, shall we say, to hit for their performance is not their healthy weight. Um, so I'll, I'll shut up now because I will probably confuse it even further if I go any deeper. Does that give you enough to go on? <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think we've kind of answered it already in the sense that I, I see and I believe that in order for an athlete, elite athlete, to function properly, they need to have good regular hormonal control because otherwise you don't get the adaptation from the training that you do so as we said you may get like and I think this is where it gets where we get stuck because I think perhaps an athlete is told to lose weight or they feel they should lose weight who knows you never know those discussions on the track side um and again, you have to, we have to be mindful that athletes are also a certain type of personality where they will have their own expectations that they can't manage. Hence, they may go down that road themselves. And they'll get a great result, as we talked about, at a lighter weight. But if they then don't go back to having health, that lighter weight is never going to mean a sustainable career ever. So if we look at the if we look at the people that have been around for a long time, like I know, for example, I've worked with Ali Dixon for a, a, for a few years, and um, I know Helen Clitheroe really well. Um, and you know, um, I've, you know, I think people. I mean, I'm you know, I've worked with Holly Rush for a long time. We're really good friends and stuff. Like we look at some of these really good marathon runners, the ones that have been around, and they're you know they're in their forties and they're still smashing out some great times right like these women are all women that have looked after themselves they've had regular periods um, and holly would be the first one to say actually you know she didn't and then she started working with me and actually since then she's had no no stress fractures her performance has improved and she's changed a lot as well like it's not just me she has changed her training she's changed her you know does a lot more strength work but she eats a load more now than she used to when we first started working together um, and, you know, we were talking about that. Um, actually, this morning it was her I was talking to. And, um, you know, but her performance is still really, really up there in terms of, of, of the results she gets. 
So I think, and then you look at some of the, some of the marathon runners who have maybe had one great result and then you never see them again. They've disappeared. And we all, you know, they, this happens. You know, you, we see a brilliant result at London Marathon and we expect with bated breath them to turn, turn up next year. And oh, they haven't because they're injured or, you know, and then it's year after year of injury and then they just disappear because they're trying to go back to that, that weight that they first performed well at, but it's not sustainable. So as far as I'm concerned, I think optimal weight is probably better than race weight. And optimal weight is where your body can work at its best. So it's where your hormones are regulated. And I think instead of just focusing on a weight, we should be really looking at body composition. Because in cycling, that's what I see. I work with a lot of cyclists. And it's not always the power to weight ratio that's the thing. It's actually the body composition that makes the difference. So if you've actually got good body composition and you're doing the right type of training, you're going to have a lot more power anyway, you know, from the glutes and, and you know, and, and from the kind of recruiting of muscles. So those sorts of things are really, really important. So I think I personally... I think coaches should stop fixating on weight and I think they should focus on actually what's the training load? Is it well balanced? Is this person putting all the right fueling at the right time? Because honestly, I have seen people in, in clinic where they've done that very low weight and getting injury after injury after injury, stress, fracture, stress fracture after stress fracture. And then they've worked with on a period for the period of time with myself and my team and we've put some really good strength training in there we've done some really good nutrition they've um got their hormones back on track weight actually hasn't changed miraculously because that's the other thing people think that their weight's going to suddenly balloon but actually maybe it's gone up a kilo or two because also when the body is um in stress or it doesn't have enough energy it tends to go into energy saving mode so it, it kind of it it slows your metabolism. And so when you start fueling again, you reboot that metabolism. So weight doesn't always shoot up as much as people think it does. You know, there's this misconception that it does, but maybe actually those two to three kilos are exactly where your body needs to be in order for you to actually perform sustainably and well. So that's my take on it. I'm sure people will disagree with me, but that is my take and it's what I've seen in clinic. And I also think it's how you get sustainable athletes that, that that you know maintain the distance well i think there's there's a huge element there where i'm sure everybody listening could certainly relate to elite athletes who've burst on the scene in in any sport whether it be triathlon ultramarathon running you know Olymp olympic athletics and they don't sustain um and I think similarly, though, there's an element in um, with amateur athletes who become very passionate about whether it be running or cycling or weightlifting or whatever it may be. And there's a two to three year excitement period and total immersion, which can end in injury and disappointment. And as you've referred to earlier, I think really poignantly, not achieving the same satisfaction or endorphin rush you know the thing that kept them coming back is now not as as powerful and it sounds like a big part of that cycle could simply be if you're not fueling correctly if your nutrition is not adequate your body hasn't recovered you're going to get two to three years you know the same way an elite athlete gets one but you're mm. not going to be doing it in five years and ten years and I mean, do you think there's a risk that if people haven't addressed some of these key basics and kept themselves healthy as well as performing, that something that, you know, fitness can be for life, um, something that really could benefit their whole lives, like the marathon runners you were talking about, even at the elite level there, who are still going strong into their 40s, um, people are maybe losing out on that benefit because they've got derailed un unintentionally and unknowingly and just sort of found, well, I don't like this anymore, so they go and do something else. Yeah, definitely. And I also think just to go back on something you've just, you know, just to pick on something you said is that if you think about whenever we start something new, whatever that might be from a, from a sporting point of view, we're going to have a period of time where we do see real physiological adaptation really, really quickly. Right. I know that. So I started strength training this year 
in April in an attempt to sort of see if it would improve my running and just because I do I'm doing more and more mountain type running and you know I was finding that um not that I was breaking down but I was just finding that like my form would change at certain points of a race and so I just wanted to kind of see so I started doing some strength training in April and I've been doing it ever since I do two sessions a week with with a coach and it's made a massive difference to my running form huge huge difference and my injury rate I mean I'm not I've always been touched with very lucky I don't get injured that often but what I notice is is that my my whole demeanor is different like my my posture is different um, I know that I'm using the right muscle types now to when I'm running. So I'm using my glutes rather than, you know, my hamstrings and stuff. So all those things that you're supposed to do, I'm doing. And it's made, it's, made, it's improved my form. And, and I've had some great results even without trying. Like I don't, I don't do speed work, just putting that out there at all. But actually I've had some really, really good results just because I'm stronger. Um, and I haven't changed physically because people will say, well, you know, you, you haven't bulked up. And I was like, no, but I lift really heavy. Like, you know, I do lift heavy for a woman. Um, and again, I do a lot of running. So that kind of negates the the kind of built muscle building as such. But I think what, you know, my strength coach always says to me, because, you know, we've just, we've literally just touched the surface with you. There is so much potential here because you're new to this. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm in my forties, but I've never, I've never strength trained before. So there's like this massive, kind of gain that I'm probably going to see for the next 18 months maybe two years but everybody would get that but it's like people then think well what can I do next what can I do but the thing is at some point you are going to hit your physiological ceiling and there's probably less and less you can do to improve like we have to remember the elite runners are outliers right they're really really good because they are outliers they're physiologically genetically um predispositioned to be good athletes it's not just about the training they do and the lifestyle they lead they are you know when we look at the kenyans we can never really compete with the kenyans because their lifestyle the way they're brought up their genetics is all kind of it predisposes them to be good athletes yeah so when we are amateur athletes and we're looking at the likes of you know uh, the paulers and the alleys and, and whatever like chances are we're probably not going to get there and, and that's not me being defeatist. It's just being realistic. Like chances are you're going to get to a point where you're going to be great for you and you're going to get some great results and you're going to feel good. But to then push yourself beyond that, that extreme behavior to try and get close to something that probably isn't really achievable. I think that's where the, where the issues become. That's where it becomes a problem. No, you're, you're right. There's certainly that um, you, you know, you come into the early part of the improvement curve and it's very steep. And I, I bet uh, just from the conversation we were having before we started recording, in a business sense, uh, I think that's also true. As your business grows, you're doing stuff every day, every week that you never did before. But the, the difference with, with business is it kind of, unlike a race or, or a, you know, a physical target, it doesn't quite have the same definite finish line so there are more and more inputs and your, your learning curve just keeps going vertical um, but there is that element for for great improvement there now I mean there is tons more we could go into because we haven't even touched on eating disorders well we've mentioned them but I, I know you know I really want to have a look at the uh, orthorexia and other elements around you know food and racing and things like that but I think we're going to have to save that for another episode because there's tons in here and what I really want is not to for us to overload people so much without um, wanting to shoehorn too much of a pun in there, I want people to be able to digest this really well so that yes. everyone can yes. get, get the maximum benefit from it. So if people want to connect up with you, Rini, where are the best places? You mentioned Instagram earlier. Where, where are the best places for people to find you, get in touch with you and learn more about what you do? So Instagram's one place where I put lots of resources out please don't contact me over instagram because i get so many requests and i can't keep up with it um but my instagram is r underscore mcgregor but if you want to get in touch then my website is probably the best place and it's just really mcgregor.com nice and simple and we have a team that will always answer your inquiries and then point you in the right direction and we've also got a lot of resources on there so if there is somebody out there who is worried about their relationship with food we've actually got a quiz on our website that helps to directly to what you might need so for some people it might be yeah, actually we're quite concerned about your answers so we would suggest a, an appointment for other people it might be you know what 
you'd really benefit from reading the book orthorexia or it might be that actually we, we think that you need to go and see your GP so we've tried to make it really interactive to help people um, signpost people to the right place as much as possible oh that that's a brilliant resource I did actually see that quiz on your website so I'll check the link with you but I'll make sure that that along with your Instagram and your website are all in the show notes below for everyone but um Rini, thank you so much for making the time this afternoon in what i know is your packed schedule and really good to catch up with you in your kitchen thank you it's been great and yeah i'm always happy to um to chat food if you need to bring me back on it's no problem <laughs> i absolutely love talking food and and eating it as well by the way for anyone who is wondering about that yeah. So there you have it, folks. Rini McGregor, give her a great big hand. She is an absolute rock star. And you are now fully armed on all there is to know about Red S. So get out there and enjoy your training. And remember that when you get hungry, head over to 33fuel.com. Get yourself some high-performance natural sports nutrition. We will ship it out to you free anywhere in the UK right away. So look, thanks very much for joining me on the show. Hope you enjoyed it. All the information uh, for where you can connect with Rini and learn more about her work and Red S is in the show notes below. And I look forward to catching up with you on the next episode.